My good people, greetings, how we're doing, how we're feeling, everyone well, feeling great, ready to tackle another day and another week. Well, guess what? We're just two days away from May. That's right. We're going to have four months into the 2019 books, and guess what? Time's going to just keep on ticking, so enjoy it. Despite the fact that we have priorities and obligations and things of that nature, I'm here to take you away from that just for an hour to talk about the, as I like to call it, the candy store, or let's say the toy store of life, and that is sports, here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. This is your first time tuning in, getting a chance to download and listen to this content. I greatly appreciate it, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart, so welcome aboard. And for those who have been with me from episode 1 to now 67, I believe it's 67. I'm going to get this straight, because my website has 67 podcasts, and for whatever the reason, on the Apple Podcasts app, It shows 66, it has all these different numbers, and I got to figure this thing out. But I believe it's 67, so we're continuing to climb up the podcast ladder as we go deeper and deeper. And again, without your guys' support, uh, I don't know where this would be, but whether or not we're here to get into everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, etc., here on a Monday, April the 29th in the year of our Lord, 2019. If I do sound stuffy, it's because... A week later, I am. I was nursing a head cold last week while we did the podcast, which was episode 66, of course. And then as I thought I was about to be 100%, I went for a long run. And then for whatever reason, I got the flu Thursday, Friday into Saturday. So, yes, if you're wondering why do I sound so nasally and didn't I sound nasally the week before? Well, yeah, this sucker is lingering and I'm hoping to get rid of it. So, well, anyway, enough of my health. I hope your health is well, and as far as the sports landscape health is concerned, we have an Islander team that's down 0-2, but I'm going to tell you why I think they're not out of this series, and it's far from over. And I'm not telling you from an Islander fan's perspective, I'm going to tell you as objectively as possible, so you want to wait to hear what I have to say about that. Also, the baseball, the Yankees on a 6-1 West Coast swing, which concludes in Arizona for two games. Is it a product of their schedule, why they're playing so well, despite the fact that two-thirds of their team seems to be on the shelf? <coughs> Excuse me. I'll uh, dissect that as well as the Mets situation with their starting pitching. I'll also touch on the NFL draft, the Giants' controversial number one overall pick, and we'll break down their first three picks. The Jets, not so much, because to me it was all about the Giants, especially here locally. And we'll uh, touch on that as well as Tyreek Evans in hot water again and what the league and what the Chiefs may do as they're monitoring the situation with another potential domestic dispute, but more so on his son than the girlfriend, but she's also included. I'll get into all that later on. But we're going to kick off with the NBA and what took place yesterday out in Oracle Arena between the Rockets and Warriors, which... A lot of people looking at this series as the NBA Finals, and for people to say that, considering that it's a conference semifinal, and that the Warriors, although when it's time for them to play ball, and time for them to put up instead of shut up, they've delivered. But I don't like the fact that a lot of prognosticators have said, well, whoever's going to win this, they're going to go to the NBA Finals, or they're going to win the NBA Finals. And what you, I'll get into that in a little bit, but what you saw yesterday was a riveting game, thrilling game. The Warriors made the plays down the stretch. The key bucket at 198 
and I don't know what Mike D'Antoni was thinking, and again, I've never trusted the Rockets. If you've listened to this podcast over the last year, the three things that would kill you if you're a Rocket fan is the coach, Chris Paul's playoff resume, and even more so, James Harden's playoff resume. So what happened this time around? Mike D'Antoni's playoff resume certainly reared its ugly head because why did he have Nene on Steph Curry there toward the end of the game at 198 where he drills the three, and for all intents and purposes, the game is over. Now, I understand people are going to look at the final play with Harden and Draymond Green and the foul and the ejection from CP3. We get all that. But the one thing that I hope doesn't become the focus of the series is the officiating, and you're going to see it front and center. You've seen it front and center yesterday, and you wonder if it's going to be like that moving forward. I hope that's not the case because it would ruin a fascinating series. Yes, does it suck that it happens to be it? During a conference semifinal, not a conference final, as you saw last year between these two teams? Absolutely. But hey, that's just how the cookie crumbled this year. But when you see all the whining and all of the panting and even in the postgame, whether it's James Harden, and I understand he downplays and says, hey, it is what it is, but you know, I want it to be fair. And we understand that he's become a master at, I don't want to call it a flop, I won't go as far as saying that, but he's become a master at trying to take that step back three and draw a foul to think. He drew 95 fouls while trying to shoot a three this year, which was the most in the league. And I'm sure there have been many times where somebody has breathed on him while he's taking a three and has gotten a foul called. Well, when you look at yesterday, to me, uh uh-uh. And that's not going to happen. I didn't think it was a foul. I understand you're going to look at, oh, there was contact, whatever, but these guys try to sell these fouls as if they were playing on a soccer field, and I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to go there when, as far as how these soccer players try to sell these calls. As we all know, they're Academy Awards waiting to happen, more like Razzies, if you know what I mean. But if the officiating is going to be so much a part of this series because of the whining, the crying, and things of that nature... To me, it's going to ruin what could potentially be one of the best series. And granted, I understand it's a conference semifinals. A lot of conference semifinals people do not remember. I remember Dallas and San Antonio had a great one. I believe it was in 06. It could have been the championship year of the Mavericks. Well, the Western Conference Championship, because remember, they lost to Miami Heat that year. Where they had a fascinating seven-game series where Dallas won. And again, I believe that was in 06. And there are a couple others that may come to mind, but again, if it's not a conference final or an NBA final, it gets forgotten. And what will truly make any conference semifinal forgotten, unless you have a knock on wood, God forbid, Tim Donahue situation, is that the officiating becomes so influential on these games that that's going to be remembered in NBA lore. But I don't want to take too much time on that. I want to look at this series for what it was. And what you saw yesterday was just... A game where two teams, and let's face it, the Warriors have had just some brutal home losses this whole season. Not even just in the playoffs, as evidenced by what happened in the previous series against the Clippers, blowing a 31-point lead in the third quarter of Game 2, and then in a closeout game, losing by 8 at home to a Clipper team that, let's face it, should have been disposed in five games. Or maybe even a sweep for that matter if you're going to look at game two. So you wonder if the Warriors 
Pedal to the metal, yes, but there are times when they take their foot off the gas and then they just kind of coast, which they can't do against this Rocket team because this Rocket team, as we all know, they live and die by the three. They have arguably the best offensive player in the sport. They have an aging but still wily and cagey point guard. And they have a guy who could shoot you in or out of games in Eric Gordon. And at times they do play pretty good defense, especially on the Mike D'Antoni, which is shocking to say the least. But as he's matured as a coach, his defensive, when they're focused on defense, they're actually a very, they're an above average team. So you hope to see that play out throughout this series as opposed to just the, uh, as to what you saw yesterday. And I get that you're going to see that a lot. And in all these NBA games, you know, you're going to see whether it was in a Celtic game yesterday, Giannis, you know, looking back and barking at the refs or whomever it may be, Kyrie, <coughs> excuse me. But with this series, because the, the focus is this. A lot of people have been waiting for Houston Golden State ever since what happened last year in the conference finals. We understand that in order for a guy like James Harden or even Chris Paul, for that matter, as many years as he's been in the league, and not getting to an NBA final, a lot of the pundits and a lot of the people who look at a player's career will always look at that mantle of making it to an NBA final and obviously winning it. So I just hope, as a basketball fan, we get treated to six or, let's say, seven games. I think if Golden State's going to get picked off, it's going to be in this series. And the crazy thing is, is that as... Unbelievable as Kevin Durant was yesterday. And Durant was just, I mean, what could you say? He seemed like he made every shot. I understand the biggest shot of the game was made by Steph Curry. But when you look at how this Golden State run, especially over the last three years and including this year, you look at this as more as Durant's team than Curry's team. And obviously Curry seems to be fine with that. There are no egos there. I think that's what makes this team special to have all that talent on one team, but at the same time, it also they're, they're much hated because people can't stand to see them win again. They're kind of like the Patriots of the NBA right now. But with the way Durant is just playing at an all-time high level and the Rockets, they didn't play their best game yesterday. I understand Golden State turned the ball over left and right and they get sloppy, and that's why they do not play well in some of these games. It's almost as if they feel like, hey, we could play sloppy and still win because we're just that good. And Steve Kerr knows better. You know, it's not as if Steve Kerr is just a guy that's been off the street or as much as anybody could say, oh, I could coach this team or somebody from IBM could coach this team. Listen, when you have these cast of characters as this, Draymond, who's fiery and feisty, Kevin Durant, an all-time great, same with Steph Curry, and then Clay's just Clay, kind of out there. Not a goofball, but still. It's not easy to manage all these. And I didn't even talk about Boogie Cousins, who's going to be out for the rest of the postseason. But certainly not an easy team to coach. You got to make sure all these personalities are aligned for the one goal. And we know what that one goal is. So I just hope to have a good series. And even with Houston not playing well yesterday, they were in the game. And a lot of people are going to look at it today and say, oh, you see, this is what I mean. Houston doesn't have a chance. I think Houston, they have an excellent chance to win this series. And everybody knows I'm not a Rocket fan or a Rocket guy. 
But I can see this being seven games. If you tell me right now, in 13 days, game seven, and you're going into the fourth quarter and the Rockets are up by six at Oracle, I mean, would anybody be shocked? But we got to see the Rockets do it. And that's the one thing that the D'Antoni, Harden, especially them two, and then you want to throw in Chris Paul in the mix. That Troika, they haven't been able to do it in a big moment. I got to see it then. And then the crazy thing is, is that that's still a conference semifinal. It's not even a conference final or an NBA final. So we'll see how that plays out. As you heard last week, I had Golden State going back to October. Do I want to see them picked off? I kind of do and kind of don't. I mean, I, I really, I waver on that. So, but if I was a betting man and I'm not, I think Golden State's going to win the series. And there's probably going to be seven games. Now, as far as the other Western Conference semifinal, you have tonight Denver and Portland, where last week Portland disposed of the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I'm sure you've seen the memes and the big shot, 37-foot from Damian Lillard. Good for him. And it's amazing because when I look at, just to put Portland aside for a second, I know a lot of criticism has come down on Russell Westbrook over the last four or five days. And it does make you wonder whether or not that he, I can't say he's not a winning player, but at the same time, you do have to pose the question, is he a winning player? Because I think he's more of a numbers guy. He's more numbers-driven based on the whole triple-doubles thing. I get that he's one of the more freakish, more physical specimens that this league has ever seen from a guy that size, that small. I mean, he is 6'3". I mean, I'm not trying to say he's 5'10". But but for him to just have boundless energy, tenacity, all that. I mean, he's everything that you'd want in a player. But for whatever the reason, he can't seem to deliver his team over the hump. And for him to, in the last three first rounds, just get disposed of, to me, it's a testament to your leader. And I don't want to spend too much time on it. There's a bunch of other things I want to discuss. But the one thing about Westbrook, and I'm sure it's going to take this whole offseason, he does have a good second banana in Paul George, and who knows what his health status was toward the end. A lot of people thought his shoulder was out of whack. But if he's playing in these games, there's no excuses. Okay, but whether it was him not performing at the top level or having that second banana that wasn't going to complement Westbrook in this first round or last year against Utah when he had to chuck 43 shots in a deciding game six in which they lost. And it does make you wonder, scratch your head, that will he ever get over the hump? And as we all know and we've seen, Ever since Kevin Durant's been gone, he hasn't been able to get to a second round. So, just a little food for thought there. But Denver and Portland. Now, Denver went through a seven-game series against the Spurs where I understand toward the end of the game, you kind of wonder what Popovich was doing there, trying to get that timeout. It was a controversy where they just let the clock run out when they were up by four. They didn't foul. (coughs) Excuse me. But Denver, let's face it, they persevered. Despite the fact that they were doing whatever was possible to give the way give away to game two San Antonio, they're here now, so that's all that matters. I mean, it's easy to say that Portland with rest and with Denver's inexperience will be able to get past this round. I, I think it's gonna be another long series. You know, I guess maybe I could say Portland will probably be the favorites here. 
But there's nothing there in Portland's tank that would make you feel confident to think that, oh yeah, this is a lock six-game series where Portland will go on to a conference final. And that's not taking anything away from Denver, but at the same time, what Denver's showing you here in this first round, despite the fact that they were competitive, that they won a big game four on the road, which was was, uh, crucial, shows you a little bit of the makeup of this team, but obviously you need to see more, and you're going to see it against a Portland team where, listen, they have a lot of juice going into this second round. Lillard is at the top of his game. You wonder if Denver is going to be able to withstand that first opening quarter because you know Portland's going to come out firing. I could see Portland, I could see him winning this series, but something tells me Denver somehow, some way is going to win its seventh game. And part of the reason is because I don't trust Portland 100%. Maybe it is their time to go to a conference final, and probably they will. I'm not going to sit here and say they're not, but I got to see more. As far as the East is concerned, the Celtics yesterday, what can you say? I mean, that was just a clinic that I'm sure the NBA thought they would never see against a Buck team that, let's face it, they're one of the top, if not the top defensive team in the league. We know how many points a game that they score. Giannis was invisible for the first three quarters of this game. And kudos to Brad Stevens for the game plan that they drew up to defend Giannis. And as crazy as this is going to sound, even with Kyrie's 26-11-7, he wasn't the best player on the floor. The best player on the floor was Al Horford. Horford was a guy that, and every team needs a guy like this. We understand he's overpaid. But he is such a leader and a glue guy on his team that he doesn't get forgotten amongst the Celtic fans and the Celtic faithful. But a lot of people around the league, when they watch that game yesterday, they say, oh, wow. Now we see the contributions of what an Al Horford does to a team that has a Kyrie Irving, a Gordon Hayward, a Jason Tatum, a Jalen Brown, etc. You know, people want to say Kyrie's the heart and soul, which he's not. To me, I look at Al Horford being more the heart and soul and blood and guts of this team. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, once Al Horford goes, the Celtics go. But let me tell you something. When Horford is on, that team is tough to stop. And I'm not just talking about from a point standpoint. And we know what he did yesterday. Hit a bunch of threes. It was just effective in all facets of the game. But when he's playing the defense that he played on Giannis yesterday and is able to make the buckets that he's going to make. Now, he's not going to have those games all the time. We understand that. But to me, I was just so impressed by him and so impressed with what the Celtics did yesterday. But I still feel this is going to be a long series. How Paul Pierce, and I love Paul Pierce to death, how he came out and said, oh, the series is over. I understand you're talking from your heart, Paul, but come on. If the Bucks come out and annihilate the Celtics tomorrow night, what are you going to say about that? Oh, there's two in Boston. They still have the home court. And we get that. But, you know, these series, they change on a dime. And the Bucs haven't come this far to just all of a sudden roll over and die. So I would expect, especially with their coach Budenholzer, and I'm not trying to make him out to be Popovich, although he comes from that tree. But you know he's going to be in the lab making some adjustments. They got to get more from their secondary and tertiary players. You know, the Chris Middletons of the world. You figure he's going to be fine, but you know what are you going to get from Eric Bledsoe? <clears throat> you know, Connaughton, I know he was a guy that... Uh, Made a little bit of a contribution yesterday and seemed to be was the only spark on that team. 
yesterday because Ilya Sova wasn't doing anything. I understand he missed Malcolm Brogdon, but as I was talking to my cousin JD yesterday, well, back and forth on Twitter, there are no excuses from this team. None. This is a team that arguably was the best team in the regular season in the NBA. They swept the Pistons, and here they are facing the Celtics, and they could say, oh, now they're facing a fully loaded Celtic team. All right, and that's fair, but you don't win 60 games to come to a second round and then all of a sudden just exit stage right. That would be a major disappointment. I'm sorry. You lose in the conference final seven game, if you're a one seed and you win 60 games, hey, it happens. Conference semifinal, that's, that's tough. And I get this growing pains when it comes to playing in these games and these series, but still, uh-uh. no excuse. And then uh, lastly, Toronto and Philadelphia. I didn't see any of the game Saturday night. I know it was Kawhi and uh, Pascal Siakam. They did a lot of the damage in this game. 74 points between them and Kawhi, as we all know, when he's on, he's one of the top, he could be a top five player in this league. And this is what I said last week when I bashed Joel Embiid. And it's only one game, so I'm not going to get on him. I'm not going to get crazy, but He's going to have to step it up just like Kawhi stepped up in his first game if he wants to be the man or one of the men in this league. So stay tuned. I'm not going to get on them just yet. They have a big game tonight. Uh, and to me, I think it's big because if you're going to be championship material, you have to win big games on the road. I mean, that's all there is to it. So they could lose tonight, go to Philadelphia, win the next two. All right, yeah, great. The series is even. And then have to go up there to win a game five. But guess what? You don't want to have to wait till then. You come in there tonight saying, uh-uh. All right. We took their first punch. If you're Brett Brown, and especially, like I said, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, now you lace up those sneakers, put the big boy shorts on, and let's get to it. And if they come up small tonight, then that's not to say they can't win the series, but it's just going to show you where the sixth team is going to go this year. At least that's my feeling. Yeah, so that's your NBA. It's going to be fascinating to see how these, especially, I mean, Rockets Warriors, I understand a lot of people are going to look at that and they're going to say, man, you know, why couldn't that be a conference semifinal? I mean, what are you going to do? And the same for the Bucks and the Celtics. What are those two teams are going to be gone? I'm sure the Adam Silvers of the world, they're probably hoping and praying that it's Boston and Golden State coming out of that. I'm sure they can live with Houston, and they'll live with Milwaukee too because of Giannis, but again, Milwaukee-Houston NBA Final, I don't know if America's going to be riveted or have any excitement towards that. The, the NBA fan will. Giannis and Harden, arguably the one and two player of the league, but for the average guy or gal, nah, probably not. And one last thing before I move on, the passing of former Celtic great John Havlicek. Now, he was before my time, people. But just to share a quick story, one of the reasons why I got into the Boston Celtics, in 1978, I went to the Garden with my dad and also my cousin J.D., who's a huge Celtic fan, and he's been a Celtic fan even before me. He, with his brother, my cousin, and his dad, we went there, and we actually got there late. And this was before the... Pre-game ceremonies, the farewell ceremonies became in vogue. Not that you see them all the time, but you get what I'm saying. You know, a la Dwayne Wade this year. But just knowing that Havlicek 
and following basketball a little bit, knowing how big he was, and I'll never forget, hey, I got to even throw my mom in the mix. My mom couldn't stand the Celtics back in the 70s, and before I really got into basketball, she couldn't stand how the Celtics always used to beat the Knicks. But my point in saying all this is that even with my parents, my dad who took me to this game, knowing how this was Havlicek's last hurrah here in New York, and how my mom used to scream at the TV, and it just made me think that, oh, geez, Celtics, all right. And that's how I became a fan. And to think of his passing due to Parkinson's disease at 79 last week, you know, it's one of those things where, hey, before you know it, whether it's Tommy Heinsohn, whether it's Bill Russell, arguably the greatest player ever, a lot of these old Celtics, the Dave Cowens of the world, the Casey Jones, I mean, I could just continue to go on. So, you know, slowly but surely, they're just gonna, they're going to leave us. And Havlicek, a lot of people looked at him as being underrated in a sense where when you look at the players of his generation, whether you're looking at Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, he was just as good, if not better, than those guys. And I understand that they get a lot of the hype, and rightfully so. Jerry West, the logo, and Oscar Robertson was the triple-double before there was a triple-double, but John Havlicek was a bad man on the court. And sadly, at the age of 79, he passes on, and thoughts and prayers go out to his family as uh, another basketball legend leaves us uh, earlier than expected. All right, so I'll turn our attention to the NHL real quick before I get to the NFL draft and also the baseball. The Islanders, I understand the Islander fan today is looking at this series and saying, oh, geez, we're down 0-2. We got to go on the road. How are we going to get this series back to Brooklyn? Can we even it up? All these questions that are abound, wondering if they could somehow, some way, get back in this thing. Well, when you look at these first two games, obviously it was just a bounce, a post, and a crossbar away from, let's face it, being up 2-0. I think Carolinas are equal. They play similar styles, the Islanders and the Hurricanes, so it's a matchup that is tough for an Islander team that, let's face it, although they got guys that can put the puck in the net, but they don't have the sniper, the dangerous guy, just like Carolina does. I mean, Carolina doesn't have star-studded power throughout their lineup. Excuse me. You know, Carolina has a lot of lunch pail guys, a lot of guys that are able to back check, produce in big spots, and capitalize on the opposing team's mistakes. And that's pretty much what you saw in game one, especially in the overtime, where I believe that was Devontae's, although was in position, but wasn't able to get to the stick of Jordan style to get the overtime goal in game one. And then yesterday, listen, you had a great shot there from the from a tough angle that beat Robin Leonard at the start of the third period. And then also 48 seconds later on a deflection. You know, those are two things that are almost indefensible. And the Islanders, let's face it, they played well yesterday. There was that stretch where toward the end of the second period and obviously the start of the third period, it was almost as if they were skating through mud, but then they got their bearings. And when you look at Jordan Eberle's Shot off the crossbar with about seven minutes to go. I knew it wasn't. I mean, you could tell it hit the crossbar. And then why were the referees, why did they stop play there? 
Andrews Lee was at the doorstep ready to knock it in. Obviously, he was wide on that. But they blew the whistle. Can we just get a stoppage of play before we could go to the video and see if it was a goal or not? That was just terrible by the refs. I mean, what were they thinking there? Did they do that in the final seconds when Devontae hit the crossbar? Where I don't know, about 25 seconds to go? That's like he hit dead on, just like Everly did. And did they stop play then? Of course not. So to me, that was in the, I mean, that was just terrible on the refs. Because you don't know, when you have that type of scrum, that type of flurry, that could lead to a goal. And for them to pull the plug on that, and I'm not just going to automatically assume that the Islanders are going to score there, but hey, you just don't know. All it takes is just that a little bit more pressure. Guys on the defensive zone, they're just kind of skating around, just trying to do whatever they can. They're, they need a blow, and they can't clear the puck out of the zone. And next thing you know, the puck's in the net, and the game's tied. So how the Islanders get back in the series, and I think they could go down there and win two games. Why not? Robin Leonard has still performed well. Obviously, he's going to be in net. To think the only goal of this series, Matthew Barzal had the wherewithal to use the defenseman stick to have it deflect and then go into the net. Although I do think his I did think his intentions was to pass the puck, but he kind of looked and seen how the defenseman was playing him, and of course the puck was just redirected into the net for their first and only goal of the series so far. But I really think the Islanders could come back for two reasons. One, Carolina has not outplayed them. The ten day layoff didn't hurt them. You know, they've played well. They just haven't been able to capitalize on these chances. I mean, it's been post after crossbar, after even the Devin Tays. I understand it was off his skate. A lot of people think that should be a goal because that was under, you know, was beneath the goal line, but obviously it didn't work out in their fashion. But the reason why I think they could come back and bring it back to Brooklyn tie 2-2 is that they've played very well. They haven't gotten the breaks on their side. And I understand that's how the game is sometimes. But they're not that far off. Yes, you want to see some production from their top guys. You want Barzal to be more in the mix. Andrews Lee. And, you know, they had chances yesterday, even against that goaltender when Morazic was let, was out of the game and they bring in Curtis McElhenney. And there was a point of the game where they didn't get a lot of pucks on them. When they did, they were that close. So it's not as if they just all of a sudden tanked or Carolina was just playing that much more well defensively that it would make you think that, oh, geez, you know, we just don't have a shot in the series. That's number one. Number two, I truly believe that home ice in the NHL does not matter anymore in any of these series. And yes, would it be nice to have a deciding game or if you're Carolina to be up 2-0 to go home and play these next two games in your building? Oh, absolutely. I mean, who who wouldn't want that? But at the same time, there is no home ice advantage at all in any of these games. And just look at Carolina and what they did last series. They won a game seven on the road where all the home teams won games one through six. And they won that game in overtime. So, and I think part of that has to do with the way the game is played in this stage or the way it's played today, unlike it was yesteryear. And everybody knows how much I love the physical play. But when you don't have people policing the ice and enforcers and people could say, oh, Jay Reels, give me a break. Stop going back into the past. Well, let me tell you something. When you went into the old Boston Garden for Game 7 or the Spectrum for Game 7 
not only did they have the crowd behind you, but you had guys on that team that there was no way, shape, or form they were going to lose that game. They weren't. Or even the Coliseum, for that matter. When you had a guy like Clark Gillies or Bob Nystrom. You mean to tell me that there wasn't an advantage by having those guys on the ice? Knowing that if anybody wanted to take a run at your top players, that you're going to have to pay the piper? Now, to me, that was part of hockey. And especially playoff hockey. But that's not the case anymore. So the game has changed in that regard. And that's why I think the Islanders can come back in the series. Because the crowd could hoot and holler all they want. But when there's a lot of ice to skate around, then you know that the you don't have to worry about having to be... And the, the rules also apply. Where you don't have to worry about boarding and people leaving their feet and things of that nature. So that means there's a lot of ice to roam around. Which means at any given point, at any given time, these teams... They don't look at the home ice as an advantage or as any type of intimidation factor because they don't have to worry about going into a hellhole of a building, for lack of a better term, knowing that, oh, we have no shot of winning this game. I don't think the players think like that today, and it's certainly a far cry from what it once was. (coughs) So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. And I think also what helps us for the Islanders is that they had the quick turnaround Friday to Sunday, and because the series resumes Wednesday, I think now they can just kind of say, all right, decompress, we'll regroup. It's not as if they're playing tomorrow night. Granted, it was an afternoon game yesterday. So they literally have three full days from the start time of yesterday's game to the start time Wednesday. And I think that's going to help the Islanders more and hurt them. So we'll see how that plays out. Obviously, if this series moves along. As far as the other series are concerned, we have... Columbus and Boston tied at one. Columbus with a huge game two win. Now they go back to their building. And I know some words have already been said. I think Brandon Dubitsky said that, that, oh, yeah, our crowd's going to be just as tough as Boston's crowd. So we'll see about that. Out west, Dallas and St. Louis are deadlocked one even, as well as Colorado and San Jose. Colorado winning last night. And they've had a phenomenal playoff so far, considering that they upended the number one seed Calgary out west. So let's see what they do there. And I get that last week, when you look at San Jose, they did get a break, let's face it. I get that Joe Pavelski was bleeding from his head, and the injury was really bad. But that was that really a penalty? That was not a penalty. I, I get that he drew blood, but he pretty much got cross-checked in the midsection, lost his balance, fell backward, and slammed his head on the ice and was bleeding. And that was a five-minute major. And that five-minute major... Down 3 nothing in the third period. Got them back in the game to the point where they took the lead. Only for Vegas to tie the game and then San Jose win in overtime. Which is a tough way to lose if you're Vegas. I understand you're going to bitch and moan about it. I get it. But, yeah, I, listen. That, to me, that was just a bad call. That's not to be insensitive towards what happened to Pavelski and his injury. But San Jose was able to capitalize on that, and good for them. If you were Vegas, I understand you could have complained and did all you want for those couple of minutes leading up to that power play, but did you have to give up four power play goals in the process? You could have stopped them, but I get it. So that's where we're at with the NHL. Playoffs are certainly heating up on both sports, and we'll uh, certainly continue to uh, keep track of that here as we continue to move on. All right, as far as the NFL is concerned with the draft, I know the Giants had received just too much negative press 
over what took place, especially in the opening round on Thursday, and rightfully so, because I'm sure somewhere on God's green earth, Jerry Reese must have been, and let's face it, call it what it is, laughing his ass off at what the Giants took with their number one pick, number six overall, in quarterback Daniel Jones. Now, nothing against the guy. I'm sure he's going to be a fine fellow, a decent prospect, who knows? That all remains to be seen. But when you hear Dave Gettleman in his press conference talk about, oh, we don't draft for need, we draft for the best player available. Well, you mean to tell me that Josh Allen is not a better prospect overall than Daniel Jones? And I get that he saw him in the Senior Bowl and he fell in love with him based on what he did then. And this is from someone who said, first and foremost, even going back to last year's draft, that the Giants need to draft a quarterback. You know, Eli's 38. I understand he had his moments last year. But let's face it, it's time to look ahead to see who you're going to draft. And as much as we could talk about whether he would have been there at 17, and chances are he could have, but we'll never know that. So we can't look at this draft, or we can't look at if the Giants drafted Josh Allen out of Kentucky that Daniel Jones would have been there at 17. No, we cannot say that. But the one thing we can say is that for every Giant fan that was looking to get that dominant pass rusher that they've been looking for, let's face it, a few years now, especially since Michael Strahan left the door, especially since Osu Yura left that door, Matthias Kiwanuka, Justin Tuck, etc. There has not been a guy, all right, Olivier Vernon had his moments, but he was nowhere along the lines of the names that I mentioned preceding him. So now you had an opportunity to get that guy that you so desperately need on defense, and he went ahead and drafted a quarterback, and especially the quarterback and a guy that was, for all intents and purposes, a reach at number six. Now, if you didn't think Dwayne Haskins was the answer or didn't think that he was going to be able to carry the mail as far as being the giant quarterback is concerned, okay, that's fine. You get that. But what was it in Daniel Jones where a guy that has the look of a quarterback, 6'5", 220, accurate, also he's very athletic, but doesn't have a ton of arm strength. A lot of people think he's Chad Pennington light when it comes to his arm. And that he played in a system or at a school that had zero playmakers. So nobody that was going to compliment him. And I understand that that could be a situation where, well, hey, give the guy playmakers and he's going to be that much more better. Well, remember, he still has to read defenses, coverages, things of that nature. And playing at Duke is a far cry from playing in the National Football League. So... If you're a Giant fan, you have every right to be frustrated, angry, upset, especially when your general manager comes out and makes comments like that. And the first thing I thought of when he said that, that he was going to eat those words at some point. Now, he hasn't as of yet. Of course, he's going to stick to his guns. But how can you come out and say, I'm going to draft for the best player available and then just throw Josh Allen away and bring me the quarterback? And this was a guy that says that he liked some of the quarterbacks but wasn't in love with them. And then all of a sudden he was in love with Daniel Jones. I guess he didn't want to tip his hand prior to the draft. Who knows? So that's number one. The second pick, and again, nothing against Dexter Lawrence, Clemson. A lot of people feel that, rightfully so, he's that middle to late 
first-round pick. And if the Giants or if Gettleman thought that, well, hey, we got our defensive player, our guy that's going to be a force on defense, well, he's certainly not going to be the pass-rushing force because here's a guy that's listed as 340, so he's pretty much Snacks Harrison 2.0. And if you're a Giant fan, yeah, you'd like that because at least you get somebody to stop the run, but as I said a couple of minutes ago, who's going to rush the quarterback? I get that you are going to take a chance on Montez Sweat and some of the baggage that was there. I think the kid from Tennessee, he, I don't think he was off the board. Jeffrey Simmons, I think he was at 19, wasn't he? I, get, I understand you are going to take him. And again, this isn't to knock Dexter Lawrence by any stretch. But let's face it. If the Giants were to redo this whole thing, and if you gave Dave Gettleman some truth serum, I'm sure he would have done this over the right way. And then the thing is, then he actually obtains another pick in the first round. So they get rid of their second round pick, and they move up to get a quarterback. And I understand they need corner help, they need defensive help, we get that. But DeAndre Baker, who a lot of people thought, oh, he's one of the top corners in the draft, so on and so forth, well... I got news for you. Greedy Williams was a guy that was ranked ahead of him on a lot of people's draft boards, and where did he fall? Second round. Sadly, the Cleveland Browns, my, the team in my division. But all of a sudden, DeAndre Baker shot up the draft boards to the point where a lot, you know, he thought that hey, this is a guy that's you know, lockdown, shutdown corner. And again, this is not to knock DeAndre Baker. I've never seen one snap of Georgia football this past year, and I'll admit that. But I do pay attention. Yeah, I do follow a lot of everything that's gone on leading up to the draft and who was ranked up top, so on and so forth. But to me, what does that justify? It's almost as if that, well, hey, I still got three number one picks and I still filled our needs. Well, hey, filling needs and best available, uh, it's just, come on, Dave Gettleman, what are you doing? And I get that the Giant fan is angry today. Well, who knows? Maybe they're not as angry anymore because, again, it's... Been two days since the draft ended. And no matter what, I get that you still got your pass rusher. I know I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. So you got your pass rusher, the kid from Old Dominion. <coughs> Excuse me. I know. I'm sounding bad right now. That uh, O'Shane Zimenez, I guess he pronounced his name, in the third round. And I'm sure Gettleman is saying hey, we got a guy that's going to be a sleeper pick. He's going to shock people. So, of course, he's going to say that. What he's going to say? Well, hey, we took a flyer on this guy. We'll just wait and see. I tell you, the Giants right now, they're operating like the Jets. Well, the Jets of a few years ago. John Idzik, or if you want to even go back further into history. And it just reinforces everything that I said weeks ago when I thought that it was just time to let go of Eli if you were so committed on drafting a quarterback in this first round, considering you drafted the running back last year, your focus should have been on retooling this whole team minus the money that Eli Manning would have had to absorb on your cap for 2019. And I get it's not easy to let go of a giant legend. Arguably the greatest giant ever. I understand certain corners, they're going to look at Sam Huff, Lawrence Taylor, I understand that. But Eli, arguably, he's, there's no doubt he's the Mount Rushmore of the giant football. 
Frank Gifford. But when it's time, and I said they should have rebuilt. I said that many weeks ago. But he figured, hey, I'm bringing Eli back for one more year. Instead of bringing in that pass rushing stud at six that could wreck a game, and if you wanted to take Lawrence at 17 to play side-by-side, fantastic. But I don't know I don't know if the game has passed him by. I don't know if Gettleman is just uh, on some sort of crusade to, I don't know if he's purposely wrecking the franchise, but you just can't be happy with how this all unfolded, especially that opening night there on Thursday down in Nashville. I mean, I wouldn't. And if you're the Jets, was Quentin Williams the guy automatic slam dunk? I get maybe some people wanted Josh Allen because they want a pass rusher. But the one thing, and granted, I understand that he's probably a few years away from retirement, two or three years, and maybe he'll never leave the sport. But if you're going to get pressure and you're playing the New England Patriots, where are you going to get it? Up the middle. And that's why they got Quentin Williams. Because they know he's a guy that not only is a run stuffer, but he could certainly get pressure in that A-gap and cause havoc and confusion and chaos in a pocket where we know Tom Brady's not going to escape from. So to me, that's what that pick was all about. Right, would you have loved the edge rusher? We understand it 10 times more sexier. We get that. But I know the Jet fan's not disappointed with this pick. It can't be. And then they went ahead to take the pass rushing kid out of Florida, Ja'Kai Polite. Well, a lot of people think he's just like a bulldozer. Got to worry about his attitude a little bit. That's the one thing, I guess, is the knock on him, which is why he was drafted. Certainly first-round talent, but a lot of people, I guess, were scared from, you know, scared away by drafting him so high. And then they got an offensive tackle from USC in their third round in uh, Adoga. So the Jets did what they had to do, unlike what the Giants did. But again, we last week I said we could grade these, and I understand you can't really grade these until you're two, three years in. The Jets, to me, you would think at least a B plus, and the Giants, they could have done a little bit better. I mean, right when you get three picks and you get a quarterback, a defensive tackle, and a corner in your first three of your first thirty-one picks, I guess you could jump for joy. But if you don't have the can't miss quarterback or the can't miss corner and defensive lineman, sometimes solid players are good. But are solid players going to win you championships? Because it's not about division titles. It's not about hosting a wild card game or winning a round in the NFL playoffs. It's about the brass ring. And the Giants know that more than a lot of organizations in this league. Now, obviously, time will tell. We'll see, et cetera, et cetera. But I know if I'm a Giant fan, I would not be happy either. And then, I'm not going to go through every team, every draft, you know, things of that nature, but the highlights of the weekend, obviously Josh Rosen getting traded to the Dolphins for a second rounder and a third round, or next year's fourth, which was, let's face it, 
The the Cardinals weren't going to get much for him. They, they just should be thankful they got a second round pick from him for Rosen. And if you're the Dolphins, I understand you're not pushing all your chips to the middle of the table because word coming out of South Florida is that they're going the tank route. And Rosen, I'm sure he's going to learn on the job, despite the fact that Brian Flores says that, hey, it's he's got to earn the job, and rightfully so. I mean, he's just not going to give it to him. But at the same time, I'm sure he's going to give him a better chance than Matt Moore. And despite Matt Moore being a veteran, he's a guy that he could fill in nicely, but over the course of a 16-game season, nah, that's not going to happen. So they're looking at 2020 and possibly being one of the worst, if not the worst team in the league, so they could get a Justin Herbert, so they could get a Tua Tagovailoa. I always butcher his name. And I understand the kid from Clemson, he's not ready to come out just yet. I believe he's going to be a sophomore, so they're going to wait till the following year for any lucky team to draft him. So that was uh, another big story that uh, came out from the draft as far as Rosen was concerned because that was all the talk with Kyler Murray going number one. And we'll see how that experiment works out there with Cliff Kingsbury out in the desert. Frank Clark was traded to Kansas City and signed for, what was it, 5 for 105 So Seattle got some picks back and they made some moves. They brought in the DK Metcalf, who was a freak at the Combine. But we'll see what happens with him, because obviously there were a lot of issues with him as well. And a lot of these plays, the Montez Sweat to Washington. I thought the Redskins did very well in this draft, especially in those first couple rounds. They got Haskins, they fell into their lap, didn't have to trade up for him. And then you have Montez Sweat, a guy who's ready to prove the league wrong. The Steelers moved up 10 slots to get Devin Bush. And I liked what he said already. I'm not here to replace Ryan Shazier. And Steeler fans, they need to temper those expectations because this is a totally different guy. Funny enough, he played at Michigan where Shazier was Ohio State. So you have that. You also have Sebastian Janikowski, who was the last guy, I believe, and think about it, he's kicked for 19 years in the 2000 draft. So... He retires after 19 years, mostly with the Oakland Raiders. Is the guy Hall of Famer? I think he should probably. I got. I don't have his stats in front of me, but the guy kicked forever. And let's face it, you know Sebastian Janikowski was more about hot dogs and beer, and I don't know what his diet was. But when you look at his body, and he had a big leg, as we all know, coming out of Florida State, and right, he didn't win anything. He wasn't Adam Vinatieri. He's not Justin Tucker, but he was a very good kicker for a long time. And I get very good isn't Hall of Fame worthy, but I'm sure he's borderline. And then with the Tyreek Hill situation, and this is going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds from this standpoint. As we all know, the Chiefs, after everything that happened last year, think about this, Kareem Hunt being an offsides away from going to a Super Bowl, and who knows, we'll never know, but possibly could have been victorious in a Super Bowl. For everything that's transpired since then and now they have this who arguably is their best offensive player other than Pat Mahomes and with everything and how they handle the Kareem Hunt situation if this ordeal is similar or if not worse now granted we don't 
see there's not any video of him striking or any force physical force upon his girlfriend or his son which all the alleged reports have it that you know his son's arm was broken by his dad there's nothing but Clark Hunt and company to do the hierarchy at Kansas City to just say son we're gonna have to let you go and that's this is a team that for all intents and purposes everybody's gonna pick to go to the Super Bowl next year and he is their biggest deep threat he is a guy that we all know defensive coordinators will stay up all night trying to stop I get it's the quarterback first but we know how much of a threat Tyreek Hill is return game even in the run game with those jet sweeps and obviously the guy runs like the wind but when you hear some of this audio and of course it comes out the day of the draft and the timing for all this I mean it's impeccable you know you don't hear about this in on April Fool's Day I mean not that that would be any type of joke but my point is is that not on a slow sports day or on a day where it's like eh ho-hum no the day of the draft hey this 11 minute audio came out of Tyreek Hill and his girlfriend in the Dubai airport of all places yeah I just you can't make it up so you gotta wonder well, how is this going to unfold? Listen, if Kareem Hunt was jettisoned just days after that video came out, and the way this is going to be investigated, you would think Tyreek Hill is going to have the same fate. And as it is, they're thinking about putting on the commissioner's exempt list, which during the offseason, that never happens. And we all know he has a checkered past. I'm not going to get into details, but all you got to do is Google that, and yeesh. He got away with it the first time. This time around, I, listen, I don't know if he has a leg to stand or the ownership has a leg to stand. They're going to have to look at this and say, son, we're going to have to part ways. So definitely going to be interesting to see. And that's going to turn That's going to turn the AFC. I'm not trying to make Tyree Kill out to be Jerry Rice or Randy Moss, but to lose your running back and your wide receiver. And I get they got Kelsey and they got... <coughs> excuse me, they have guys that are complimentary on that team, Sammy Watkins, we get that. But that would just be a huge blow to that team that has Super Bowl aspirations just dancing in their head. All right, now let me wrap up with some baseball. Real quick, the Yankees, what could you say? Here they are, guys are just falling like flies. It's amazing to think that they have all these injuries with these players. Now you have DJ LeMahieu is a guy that's now, x-rays were negative, so of course you look at that and say, all right, sigh of relief. You don't have to worry about what's happening there. But when you have a situation where this team has players that are hungry, that are ready to, I don't want to say take that next step, but when they know they have an opportunity and be able to seize it, whether it's the John Fords of the world who hit a home run, or... Gio Urshela, who's actually played well, and he he had a situation where he needed some x-rays, and he's doing okay. But the Yankees, I mean, let's face it. They have certainly done a fantastic job being able to take advantage of the schedule. Now, I don't want to throw cold water on them because, let's face it, the Yankees have played the dregs of the AL and NL West in Anaheim and San Francisco. So when you have a situation, excuse me, when you have a situation where despite the fact that two-thirds of your lineup is out and Gary Sanchez, who came back, he was over four with a golden sombrero on the 
Opening night is return, I believe that Wednesday night in Anaheim, but then hits the Grand Slam that's still going out in the Bay at uh, the old Pac Bell Park. I don't even know what it's called now. They change the name every five seconds. But when you have the contributions that they've received from all these different players, it makes you think that not only do they have the resources and these players are doing well, but they're taking advantage of this opportunity. How long it's going to last, and especially when you have competition that's, let's face it, there's been subpar when they beat the Royals those last three games and then six of seven here to make it a 9-1 stretch, then yeah. But what's going to be interesting is that not this coming weekend, because they go to Arizona for two, and Arizona's a good team, and then they have a homestand where they play Minnesota and Seattle. Now I understand Minnesota and Seattle, that's going to be some competition, but the Yankees own Minnesota. doesn't matter how good they are in Seattle. But the following weekend... They go to Tampa. That's going to be, and to think, to me even saying that the Yankees going to Tampa is going to be, I don't want to say must-see TV, but it's going to be a series that everybody's going to keep their eyes on to say, all right, we'll see how for real these Tampa Bay Rays are. And it'll be interesting to see how many Yankees come back to play in that series. You know, Stanton had a situation where he had a bicep, but then his shoulder, something happened there. So he's continued to be on the shelf. Who knows what's going to happen with Aaron Hicks? Aaron Judge with his oblique. I mean, the injuries just keep piling on and on and on. But the Yankees have persevered. They played well. And so what? I get it that it's the last place schedule, Anaheim, or not the last place schedule, but you're playing last place teams. But those are the teams you're supposed to beat up. And if they're in your way, and if they're in front of you, that's what you're supposed to do. So give the Yankees credit, even if they have me playing third base. So kudos to them. Got to give them credit. And now to turn our attention to the Mets, we understand that their pitching is going to take them to heights this year that, as Mets fans, we only hope to dream of. And what you've seen so far in the first 27 games, now forget about the bullpen. Other than Diaz, we get that the bullpen is a disaster. And no matter how much Brody Van Wagenen could say, well, you know, we brought this guy in, we brought in the Justin Millers of the world, and, and, and only hope that it, somehow, some way, and I'm just going to pick on Noah Syndergaard. You figure that Jacob DeGrom is going to figure this out. To see him go through three straight starts after the debacle that happened last week with the elbow and the non-MRI and him being healthy all of a sudden. All right. We'll put that aside. And hopefully that after this start, he could be back on the beam. He'll pitch Wednesday against the Reds. And he'll go back to being Jacob DeGrom. As far as Noah Syndergaard is concerned, it's time for him to get his rear end out of his, or his head out of his rear end. I can't even speak right now because I'm just frustrated by his performance so far this year. He's walking guys left and right. He can't put hitters away. He's 3-2 and two with everybody. I get that he's been pitching in these conditions where the weather's not been conducive, it hasn't been warm, and we could talk all we want about, well, hey, let's wait and see until the weather gets warmer. Okay, I understand that, but the weather's not warm yet. And let's not use that as an excuse. Because there's another guy in the other dugout that's pitching too, and he seems to be doing fine. Syndergaard's walked a lot more people than he normally does. He's given up a lot more home runs. The other night, I mean, please, five innings, ten hits, three walks. Jeez. Uh, uh, what's going on here? Is he tipping his pitches as a lot of people thought Jacob DeGrom was, especially in those two starts that he had against the Twins? And... The Sunday night game against Atlanta? 
you'd only hope that this is just a blip in the radar for these guys. Because despite the fact that Steven Matz, who, let's say, other than that one start in Philadelphia where he couldn't register an out and gave up eight runs, six earned, he's been our best starting pitcher. And it's interesting to think that the other two guys that you're hoping to get the results and hoping to get the push in this rotation in a one Steven Matz and Zach Wheeler, they're the guys that have actually come through. Now, Wheeler's been wild on his own to start off, but he's actually pitched better in his last couple starts. Whereas DeGrom, in the first two starts of the year, the guy was lights out. It was almost as if he didn't even skip a beat from last year. And in his last three starts, you're wondering, saying, okay, well, is this going to end anytime soon? Are we going to go back to, and listen, are we going to go back to the 2018 version? No. But yes, it would be nice to see him have some clean games. Six innings, two runs, five hits, whatever it is. Eight strikeouts. I'd sign up for that. But Syndergaard has really been puzzling. And I only hope that somehow, some way, he gets his act straightened out to the point where, and he's going to have the Reds this coming Thursday in an afternoon game. And who knows what the weather's going to be like as the weather in the Northeast has been atrocious. So that's really my only concern. And it's interesting because of all people, and he's a big Met fan, i got to give it up for Gary Myers. Gary Myers made an interesting point that now that the Mets have DFA, Travis Darno, and thankful, good, good riddance, I'm surprised. I don't know why Brody kept him especially after signing Wilson Ramos. To me, they just should have kept Devin Mesoraco on this team as the backup. Mesoraco would have taken that. I'm sure he would have been fine with that. He would have had a job. He would have been on the team. But the way that split, and I don't want to say it was acrimonious, to say the least, because obviously I don't know that, but I don't think it was warm and fuzzy either. But for Gary Myers, a football guy, football writer, well-esteemed. For him to make the point that for the Mets and the right thing to do to be to bring back Devin Mezzarocco because of the success that Jacob DeGrom had last year, well, you know what? There's something to that. <coughs> Excuse me. And why wouldn't the Mets somehow, someway throw out a flyer? And I guess, listen, they got Thomas Nito. They think he's – and he had a big hit yesterday. I'll give him that. But please, Thomas Nito's not a big hitter. He gets to throw out some runners every now and again, but still. And we get it's a backup. It's not as if he's starting. It's not last year's dregs of the catching woes that we had, if you recall. You know, Jose Lobatones and Nito and uh, forget about it. The list goes on and on. But you're only hoping that this pitching staff somehow, some way, just starts to round out into shape. And I get that, oh, it's only a month into the season. Jay Reels, relax. The team's been hitting. But this, this team's strength, as we all know, is those top four guys. And when you're number one and two are not performing well, and your three and four in recent weeks have been better, then what's the excuse? And I'm not trying to say you got to pitch a no-hitter every time you go out. No, nobody's asking that. But Noah, I mean, geez. And I hate to pick on him. I love him and everything, but... You know, at least Jake, you can kind of say, all right, wow, he's really hit a bad stretch. It's unlike we, anything we've ever seen in the last couple of years coming from him. But all right, you know Jake's a bulldog. He's going to figure it out. I feel like Noah, he's, it's, it's in his head right now. And the Mets, they had to get that game yesterday, which was good for them. You know, they're on a long homestand. As we said last week, they had 16 of their first 21 on the road. 
They won two out of three against the Phillies, including those first two. Then they lose the first two against Milwaukee, and then they won that game yesterday, which was big. Because now they have a four-game set against the Reds, which they should minimum win three out of four. I mean, I'm not going to say sweep uh, as much as I'd want that, but think about it. Tonight you're going to have Mats, Wheeler, then... Oh, no, as a matter of fact, you're going to have Wheeler tonight because Mats pitched yesterday. Hello. You're going to have Wheeler tonight, then Vargas tomorrow, which you hold your breath, then Jake and Noah. You mean to tell me you can't win three out of four here against a red team that, yeah, they got some sticks in the lineup, we get that, but they have zero pitching. And the Mets have been able to hit so far this year. Alonzo's still doing great things. Jeff McNeil's batting 360. Cano got hit on the hand again. There's the left hand, I believe, this time. X-ray's negative. He's been starting to rake. Conforto's cooled off. Rosario's been well. I mean, he's done well. I know he's batting 260, but he's had big hits. He's had 15 RBIs. And he's batting at the bottom of the order. So, if you're a Met fan, you like what you see offensively. But the pitching, man, jeez. We need to get a lift from those two guys. And I'm calling out Noah in that regard. And then they go to Milwaukee this weekend, which is going to be interesting because they faced Milwaukee now. It's going to be six times in the last 10 days. You're not going to have your top two pitchers going against them. You'll have Mattson Wheeler, at least for the first two. And then after that, after Milwaukee, they don't come home there on the road again. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think they go out west, if I'm not mistaken. I think they have a trip. Uh, I should know. So they go to San Diego before coming home. So that's to deal with the baseball. Again, tomorrow, like I said, we have all summer to get into what's happening with the rest of the league, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, it's a lot about the playoffs and even with the NFL draft, but that will start to cool off as we'll continue to monitor everything that's happening with the Stanley Cup and NBA postseasons. And one last thing before I bid adieu. I don't know. I figured, let me just throw this out there. I'm going to put a poll on my Instagram stories and just get a feel. And I guess, listen, I've been doing this for over a year and I'm not into gimmicks. I'm not into hokiness. That's not my deal. But you know what? I figured, let me just throw this out there. If it's good, if it sticks, if people like it, great. If not, you got to experiment, right? You got to try it. So I'm going to do a hero in zero of the week. And just my thoughts on something that took place or a player or team, whatever, that I feel was a hero in zero of the week. And to start off, my hero of the week, I got to throw Dame Lillard. Hitting that shot, which was... In Paul George's estimation, a bad shot from 37 feet to end the series to slam the final nail into the Oklahoma City Thunder coffin. Uh, You can't get any better than that to end the series as cold-blooded and put up a 50-piece in the process. And then obviously with the memes after that, just the cold-blooded stare. I will say this, Dame Lillard, you could do that round one, but I need to see that round two and if you make it around three. Because, yeah, people may look at that and it's all fun and games right now. But let me see that deep in a series, in a big spot, no pressure. Well, there's a ton of pressure on you. I mean, they were up 3-1. So if you missed that shot, then we're going to go into overtime. But still, 37 feet to drain that shot the way he did, definitely hero of the week. And as far as the zero of the week is concerned, and I get the Philly fan or the person's going to say, oh, this typical Met fan of J-Real is going to come out and say this, but Reese, Hots- Reese Hoskins, the first baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies, is my zero of the week. I get that the night before on the Tuesday game, Jacob Rame threw at him, 
and was upset. Could have had a bench-clearing brawl. Didn't happen. And in the postgame, he says, that's all right. Tomorrow's another day, and tomorrow's another big game. And Phillies were floundering. They only scored one run in two games. And in the ninth inning, he comes up, and he hits a home run that barely cleared the wall, first row in left field. And he literally crossed home plate right now. 34 seconds to go around the bases. I get he was trying to rub it in. And guess what? You could Cadillac it all you want. But he made David Ortiz circle the bases as if he was sprinting. David Ortiz, as Yankee fans are well-versed and well-known, and thankfully you don't have to see this anymore, but whenever he hit a home run against the Yankees, it was literally 20 to 25 seconds. This was 34 seconds. I and mean, give me a break. Reese Hoskins, I understand you're a good player, you made an all-star team, and you have every right to do what you can in that moment. But I'll give you an example. When Giancarlo, got, when Giancarlo Stanton got hit in the face by Mike Fires when he was a member of the Miami Marlins and Fires was a Milwaukee Brewer, he got hit in the face. And then last year, while Fires pitching for Detroit, we know he's the New York Yankee now, and I believe in the first at bat he threw up and in, not anywhere close to his face, but you know, <laughs> Giancarlo, you know he probably flashed back to that 2014 incident. And then as a next at bat, what did he do? He smacked one over the fence. At first, I think he did a bat flip. He probably shook his arms or did whatever. It was a little demonstrative in his emotions. And then he circled the bases, and that was it. That was his payback. But for Reese Hoskins to come on, literally walk around the bases, and then as he's approaching home plate, stop and just take two steps, uh, please. I hope this starts a rivalry that I think baseball needs, and why not? Rivalries, I think, are healthy and they're fun, especially for the fans. But for him to do that, to me, that was just a disgrace. I don't care what you think, what you feel. I get that could be, oh, because you're a Met fan, that's why. But if I was objective, I look at that, it's like, all right, yeah, that's his way of gloating. But you know what? If he gets one in the ear flap next time up, don't be surprised. June 24th is the next time they play, so just keep that in mind, everybody. All right, with that being said, let me leave. I appreciate everybody taking a chance to listen to me and being able to download this content as I try to compete myself against the plethora of sports podcasts in this universe of cyberspace and if you could do your part people just to please subscribe leave a review post a rating on this show tell your friends share with everybody on social media you know how social media is a big powerful tool and i get not everybody sports fans not everybody i know that i'm friends with are sports fans but if you could just spread the word take a screenshot put in your instagram story whatever it may be copy the link paste it whatever it will go above and beyond anything I could ever ask for you guys to do as I try to get the word out to produce and independently, as I might add, produce this type of content for you, for the masses, to edit, to host, everything. And you could do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, any of those platforms. Of course, they have the website, jreels.com. You want to send me anything, questions, comments, criticism, praise. Uh, my Instagram account is jreels. The Twitter account, JReels1, just the number, and the JReels podcast on my Facebook fan page, as well as the JReels podcast at gmail.com for any email that you'd like to send. And as always, people, I do this not only because I love sports, but I have a passion for it. And I hope you get to hear that and feel that in my voice each and every week as I deliver everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the hardwood, ice. Gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. The J. Rose Podcast always comes correct, directed, in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. 
Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Rose Podcast, on the flip, baby.